We're going to read just that sixth verse this evening. We'll be looking at several other passages, but continuing our study of the book of Isaiah, this ninth chapter. If you have a sermon outline, you're going to see there's three points. Uh, I'm not going to make it through all three. Um, We're going to cut it a little short, so we're only going to look at two of the remaining three names, and we'll leave the title of Prince of Peace for next Sunday, Lord's Day, the Lord willing, which uh, just remind you, our children are going to be singing next Sunday morning, the Sunday school children, the youth choir, our adult choir as well, a morning of uh, great praise to our Lord. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Can never read these words enough. And every time we read them, we ourselves should be filled with wonder. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Consular. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we ask that you give Pastor Bob what is necessary to preach the truths of your word and hearts that will accept them and live by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And Amen. So as we're looking at our our outline tonight, it's really a carryover from this morning um, as, as we think about the lettering and so on and so forth. What we have here is the second of the, and he shall be called. This morning we looked at wonderful consular. Does that mean? What's the understanding there? I was reminded, uh, Uh, of the fact that I had made a note in my uh, notes uh, for this morning, but didn't get to it. It came to us from Colossians chapter 2, and it reads as follows. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, it's not just that Christ knows a lot about one thing. It's not that somehow Christ is the wisdom of God in the sense that, yes, in terms of spiritual matters, Christ is the par excellence in terms of wisdom. But the text tells us are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything about life, everything that you and I face, Maybe I, as I recount this morning, maybe I didn't make that point clear enough this morning. We spend so much time searching for answers. But the answers we are searching for 
we're looking so often just to other people. We're, we're looking to, to sources of information that are so limited in their understanding. Rather than looking to Christ, who is, as this passage in Colossians said, the wisdom of God are hidden all the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as we're seeking to learn, as we're seeking to grow, as, as we're seeking to, to try to find our way through life, especially perhaps in this last couple of years, where do we go? Another pundit? Uh, another report? Another research statistic? Is that really going to give us hope? Is that really going to be the answer? Is that really going to be the solution? Or do we look to Christ? Who is the one who is full of wisdom and knowledge. That's where we were this morning. He is indeed the wonderful the counselor. But secondly, if you look at now Isaiah 9, 6, he is also going to be called Mighty God. Mighty God. First of all, let me just state there's an importance in the very words that are used. The word mighty, as it's used here, means strong, powerful. And we'd go, well, yeah, that's, that's nothing new to me. I, I, I would have perhaps come up with that. If I had said to you, what does the word mighty mean? You would have said strong. You would have said powerful. But the word, as it's used in Hebrew, has a couple of other ideas associated with it. And it's the ideas of a warrior. It's the idea of a champion. It's the idea of one who is strong and powerful, who has indeed won and destroyed. This child who is going to be born is no weakling. This is, this is no... How would I describe it? This, this is no weak link. This is no one who succumbs, has to give in. This is one who is a champion. This is one who is a conqueror. The one who is coming is mighty. Mighty. I can't help but think back to, to, to those angels singing. That's why I read from from Luke chapter 2. How are they described? They're described as a heavenly host. And as I've indicated to you before, this isn't a bunch of long flowing golden locks guys with harps strumming along. The host describes warriors. This is an army. This is an angelic army that is standing there. Glory to God in the highest. 
It's a chant. Glory, glory, glory to God in the highest. And who are they singing of? The child who is the champion. The child who is the one who is mighty. They're singing of their leader. They're singing of the one who leads in triumphal procession. He shall be called what? Mighty. Mighty what? Mighty God. The Hebrew uses the word L here. Just capital E, L. Which means, in the Hebrew, absolute deity. He is the absolute deity. The champion. The mighty. The powerful. The warrior God. The one who has defeated all of his foes. Yes, that's the child. The child. That's what makes this so amazing. For to us a child is born and what is the child? The child is already mighty God. It's not he's going to become mighty God. It's not that, well, we've got to go through some processes and maybe we'll get there and then he'll be mighty God. No. Why? Because where were we this morning? This is the Father describing the Son. This is the Father describing the nature of the Son that He has known from all of eternity. What is the nature of the Son that He has known from all of eternity? That He is a warrior. This is not our general picture. This is not the general viewpoint that most people in the world have of Jesus Christ. In fact, sadly, it's not even the view that most Christians have of Jesus. But it is the biblical view. It is what Christmas is all about. It is what this child being born. Oh yeah, there's the other side of it. To be sure, there is the babe of Bethlehem lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Yes, there is that aspect of the fact that he is but a baby. Yes, but he is mighty God. This baby is mighty God. The hope of all the world. The one who is the conqueror. He's a baby. This is, not, this is not the wisdom of the world. This is not the way the world thinks. The world would look at it and say, well, the child is weak. Anybody could come along and kill the child. No. No. Because that child is mighty God. That child is a champion. That child is a warrior. And he is the absolute deity. See, that's why I say every time you read this, something else just comes out. This is a text we hear over and over and over again. But here's that marvel. That to us is given the mighty God. To us, this child is born. 
For what purpose to us? He already is mighty God. What to us? So that we might know. That we might know the one who is King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he shall be called mighty God. Now what we really need to do though is to take a little journey in God's word about this. Okay, this, this idea of God being mighty and, and how it plays out throughout the Old Testament and then what that teaches us in our day, in our age, in our lives. So let's start in the book of Deuteronomy. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll eventually get back to Isaiah 9, but for now, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Go all the way down to verse 17. That's where we're going to find it, but we're going to back it all up. Moses is reiterating for the people what happened at Mount Sinai. They're about to enter Canaan. Moses is reiterating what happened, how they worshiped the calf, and then God gave new tablets of stone. But the call there is not that there would be some exterior obedience. It's what he's talking about starting at verse 12 on but that there would be a circumcision of the heart. Not just external, but an internal compliance to the Lord. And he goes on to talk about we should fear the Lord. Reverent fear. And we should seek to obey the Lord. Now look what happens. Okay, I'll start at verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, And be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. See what Moses is saying? Understand who God is. Submit to him. Submit to his rule. Obey him in your heart of hearts. Not just exterior. Now think of what happens. We, Wednesday morning, we've been in Matthew chapter 5 in, in our Wednesday morning Bible study. We're having a hard time getting through all the questions I have because there is so much there. And what do we keep coming back to in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus keeps challenging them that obedience is not just an external thing. It's internal. It's the attitude. Of the heart that need that our hearts need to be compliant to the Lord. You say, well, why are you bringing this up? Because that same word mighty here in Deuteronomy 10 is the same word that Isaiah is using. In other words, this child is the one you need to be obedient to. This child is the mighty and awesome God. Scripture is not making a distinction. The God of Deuteronomy 10 
is the child of Isaiah chapter 9. And our hearts need to be circumcised before him. Let's go to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Verse 7, it's the picture of a king returning victorious from a battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Same word. Who is the child? He is the Lord who is mighty in battle. He is the victorious one. Not one that, oh, we have to be so careful and watchful of. He's the conqueror. Herod's never going to lay a hand on him. People of Nazareth aren't going to be able to throw him over a cliff. Only when he relinquishes his life voluntarily. It is not taken from him. He lays it down of his own will. But even then, he rises victorious. That's the child. The king, mighty in battle. Do you see him? Do you see it? Do you see just the child? Or do you see what God sees? Do you see what the Father sees? Do you see the nature of this child? Not only is he the one we need to submit to in obedience, in our heart of hearts, he's also the one who is the conqueror, mighty in battle. He is the one described in Jeremiah chapter 32, 18, as the one who is the one who can, is powerful to deliver. He can deliver any that he chooses to deliver. This child can rescue those who think they are beyond rescuing. Those who think they're beyond being able to be saved. He is able to rescue and to save. Why? Because he is mighty God. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 32. Nehemiah speaks of God as being mighty in being able to keep covenant. Think of that in terms of this morning, right? And Jesus took a cup. Right? And he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. He is able to keep covenant. Why? Because he is mighty God. He is the one who has waged battle and has won. He is the champion. What glorious promises to us. What glorious hope. 
What glorious comfort. What reason for joy. How not could we but celebrate the birth of the child. For he is mighty God. It's the assurance that we are given in the name. Back to Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And his name shall be called. Wonderful Consular, Mighty God. Third one. Everlasting Father. Perhaps for us the most difficult, maybe for us the most confusing. Why, why are we calling the child the Everlasting Father? And we're, we're getting a little confused here, right? right? We're, we're taking in our, our Trinitarian, our good Trinitarian understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is the child. This is Jesus. You've made that abundantly clear, Pastor Bob. This is Jesus Christ. Why is he given the title then of Everlasting Father? Are we confusing the two? No. No. Because remember what a name signifies. Remember this morning? Right? Let me tie it in again. A name in the Old Testament signifies the nature, the character of a person, not necessarily their title or role. So when the words come, everlasting Father... We, in our Trinitarian belief, have a tendency to jump into, well, how can, how, how can that be? He, he's the Father. No, he's the Son. Is he the Son or is he the Father? Which is it now? Well, eventually we're going to get to the point of saying he's both. But the title, the name, when it says he shall be called the everlasting father. The father here is about his character. And it's that character of Psalm 103, our call to worship this morning. The character of a father who forgives. The character of a father who loves. And he loves and he cares Everlastingly. Not for a period of time. Right? Most of us as dads, we can, sometimes we, we have good days. Okay, maybe we have good hours. Maybe we have good minutes. Right? Of being that, that father of, of Psalm 103. But Psalm 103 is describing the everlasting Father, the nature, the character of Jesus. It's not limited. He doesn't have bad days when he comes home from work and work has been horrible. He is always the character of Psalm 103. Yet, this is a very biblical statement that is being made about the child. The child 
is the everlasting Father in terms of His character, in terms of His nature. This is the way He will indeed carry Himself in this world. Yet we are reminded, are we not? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. The Lord, our God, is one. We cannot separate out. As if there were in glory three gods. The Lord our God is one. What had Isaiah promised and prophesied in chapter 7 verse 14? And you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. What is Joseph told in Matthew chapter 1? You shall call his name Jesus. For he'll save his people from their sins. Oh, but before that, before that, he is told that this child is going to be Emmanuel. He quotes, does Matthew, Isaiah 7, 14. God with us. God with us. God. Jesus tells us several times in the Gospel of John, and it really riles the Jewish people, at least the religious leaders. Right? John 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. What has he just said? I'm God. I'm God. See, there is a sense, I want to be careful with this, but there is a sense when we come to Bethlehem and when we come to, to, to the manger, we have to be careful. There is a sense, I'll put it this way, in which we have to step back from our understanding of the Trinitarian understanding of God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we just have to look at that manger and say, there is God. Because that's what Scripture teaches us. There is God. Okay, we, we mean by that a lesser God, right? No, no. We, we mean by that like second in order God. No. No, that's, that's one of the things these titles force us to look at. It's the fact God sent himself. God sent himself to be the child born of Mary. You talk about that which we should marvel God didn't send an angel. God, God didn't send some super prophet. God didn't send an archangel. God sent himself. I'll go. And in this title, perhaps more than the others, we see that understanding. 
When Jesus says to the Jews before Abraham was, I am, that was exclusive to their understanding of Jehovah. They thought he blasphemed. But he didn't. There was no there, there were no truer words ever spoken than the fact that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. What does Jesus say later on? I think it's John 10 and then in John 17. I and the Father are two separate entities and we each have our own compartments and we each do our own things. No. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In other words, yes, we confess that God is Trinity, but what we tend to do with it is we separate, separate it out into three distinct individuals. And that's not our understanding of Trinity. That in each the whole is contained. So much so that when we look at the child of Bethlehem, his name shall be called Everlasting Father. And that throughout all of time and throughout all of eternity, we have one who was given that name who loves us with a love that is unconditional as his people. That everlasting Father died for you and for me. It's pretty amazing. Talk about the wonder of it all, right? The wonder of it all. I mean, I wonder about shepherds. I wonder about the star. I wonder about the wise men. I got a lot of questions about this, this event. But that which causes the most wonder is that God That's the point of Bethlehem. And I hope that for you and for I, we never, we never think too much of Jesus being born in a manger of Bethlehem. For this child who is given to us shall be called the wonderful consular, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Yet how God chose to come, what a marvel.
marvel in the stable of Bethlehem is our king. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you. Every once in a while, perhaps we think we're too old for all this stuff about Jesus' birth. It's just for kids. Oh, it is for children. It is for children. It's for every child of God to reflect on, to dwell on, to celebrate, to hope, to give us that peace and assurance. Because the manger of Bethlehem is where Emmanuel God with us entered into this world in human flesh to take upon himself our sin so that we might be called children of God. In his name, God's people say, Amen. We turn to 321, 321. 321 is one of those Christmas carols that reflects that quietness, that reflectiveness, that we need to think about this. Infant holy, infant lowly. We're going to sing that, then we're going to have our benediction. Then I want you to turn back to 318. And I want you to sing for our doxology, that third verse of 318. For there we see the one who is the infant holy, the infant lowly, is the one who is the one to whom the angels sing, Christ the Lord, the newborn King, and to him belongs glory in the highest forevermore. Amen, amen.